0: Um, so we're taking a step back from First Peter, but we're going to st- start off since this is the world that we're familiar with. We want to stay in that world just for for a few moments, um, thinking about First Peter. He's t- he's teaching the church in First Peter how to live a beautiful life in a hostile world. H- how do you how do you shine? when the forces of evil and darkness start crunching in on the church? How do you do that? It's a skill that the first church, uh, the early church needed to know. And it's a skill that we need to know now as, in, as, our, as our world increasingly becomes more hostile to our faith. But, but this morning, instead of continuing and advancing that discussion, I wanna step back and, and take a look at the discussion itself and realize how crazy that is, that there's a discussion in the Bible for Christians, for God's people to learn how to navigate hard things. If you think about it, think about everything that Peter had witnessed in his life, Uh, starting with walking on water, starting with Jesus calming a storm, eating bread that Jesus had broken miraculously and provided, seeing demons cast out of people and lives restored and and sight restored. He, He witnessed the power of God. God had come and Peter had been a witness of that. He'd seen the crucifixion, but he had also walked into the empty tomb. He knew Jesus was alive. He knew that the power of God existed in the earth. Um, he was there on Pentecost filled with the spirit and he preached a message in which 3,000 people were baptized at the end of that message. And that bridge we just sang in King of Kings about the, the spirit lit the flame and the church of God advanced throughout the entire world, Peter lived that story. The fact that he picked up his pen and he wrote to the churches in Asia was a testament to the fact that God was alive and victorious and powerful. Christ had unleashed an unstoppable movement. The Spirit of God was moving throughout the world and taking the gospel. But just as these churches were planted and established throughout the civilized world, everything changed. You know the story the unstoppable force of the church, nothing could stop it, it ran into the brick wall of the Roman Empire. And they, they push back. At first, the church was treated with suspicion and then it turned into contempt. By the time Peter wrote the letter, Christians were beginning to face mistreatment, mockery. They were derided for their moral positions, so much so that Peter could write the church and say, you're enduring a fiery trial. In just a few years, with the, with the letter still fresh in, the, in the, the hands of the church, Nero would take over and unleash widespread awful persecution. He would murder and torture Christians for his sick entertainment. No, we know that the church triumphed. The, The fact that we're sitting in this room this morning, and you can go and look at the ancient remains of the Roman Empire, it shows you that the church has triumphed. And we celebrate that fact, just as Jesus predicted. But it's confusing, isn't it? A little bit. How could the triumphant God of the resurrection and Pentecost watch His saints burn on a pole for the sick entertainment of a perverted emperor. That's a hard question that we need to wrestle with. It doesn't make any sense. What do we do when the facts of our faith, what we know to be true about God doesn't line up with what we see in our life? What do you do? How do you handle that tension? The facts of your faith don't line up with the facts of our lives. A lot of people in the early church felt that tension and it didn't make sense and they had no way to reconcile that tension and so they walked away. The personal cost wasn't worth it. That's why the New Testament is filled with stories of God's resurrection and power and triumph but it's also filled with stories to Christians to stick with it and persevere when you don't feel that power and that triumph an interesting dynamic that we have in the Bible. There's a major problem in the first century, but it's not just a first century problem. Christians have been wrestling with this for 2,000 years. And I bet this room is filled with people asking similar questions. God, I've prayed for healing. I read this book and I see it happening and I know you can heal me. And I've seen healings in this church. Why am I still sick? God, I pray, I do my devotions, I'm faithful, I go to church, you know how diligent I am, I show up here, why can't I feel you? Everyone else raises their hands in worship, my prayers bounce off the ceiling, are you just ignoring me? Maybe the wives, after a, a sermon from last week, God, I'm, I'm being patient with my husband, I, I've tried to apply that text that I heard last week, like 1 Peter 3, but it's not working, it got worse this week. Some of you are trying to have faith in God, but your faith doesn't seem to be working. Add to the fact that your faith now is costing you. A couple of years ago, maybe it was convenient for you to have faith, and so you could press on because it still got you social points, but not anymore. Your faith is now costing you. Your position on homosexuality, wives' role in a marriage, is starting to make you look strange. And so you're paying the price for having this faith, but it doesn't do anything for you. How much longer can you keep it up? I know this room is asking hard questions. Um, I know your friends and your family are asking hard questions. I've seen it way too many times over the last few months. Friends of mine public figures, people that I'm connected with, walking away from the faith because there's, there's tension in their life and they can't seem to make sense of it. They can't add it up. The facts of my life don't make sense with the God I see in the Bible. And so they walk away. Pe- people are walking away. They're, they're concluding it's just not worth it. That's what I wanna wrestle with this morning. The Bible invites us to have faith in a powerful and living God. But the Bible also teaches us how to have faith, how to hang on to that faith when it doesn't feel like it. Both messages are in the Bible. Sometimes you need that first message. Sometimes you need that second message. I wanna focus on that second message this morning. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 131. It's where we're gonna be today. One of the smallest chapters in the Bible. Maybe you've read it through your your annual readings, but you just kind of pass over it because it's a small one. I I don't know over the past 13 years if there's been any text in scripture that has made a bigger impact in my life than these three verses. Um, God did not use this text to create a, f- a faith in my life. That was earlier in my, in my life. But God did use this text at a very crucial time in my life to preserve my faith. Just what we're talking about this morning. It's a big statement when, you, when somebody says uh, there, there's not a, a bigger passage of scripture over a decade than this. So let, let me explain as you're making your way to Psalm 131. I, I first found out about this text in late February, 2007. Oh, probably to the day, uh, close to this season. It was in the cold winter of 2007, late February, 13 years ago. A friend of mine that went to Moody Bible Institute had sent me a link to a sermon that he had just heard and thought it might be helpful for me. He was at Moody's Founder Week and this gentleman named Haddon Robinson, if you're familiar with that name, uh, Google him and listen to some of his stuff, um, preached a message on Psalm 131. I was in my parents' uh, kitchen in Buies Creek, North Carolina, at their giant desktop computer. I logged on to the internet. That's when you had to log on. And I downloaded this sermon. Not the most, uh, not the best place, I guess, to listen to a sermon, but there was a crater in my heart after 30 minutes of this sermon. It, It shook me to the core. And God used those three little verses of Psalm 131 to completely transform my life. It had come at a good time. You see, a couple weeks earlier, early February of 2007, I'd gotten a call from my dad, who's here this morning, um, at 2 a.m., now I love when my dad's name pops up on my phone, I love it, I love seeing that. I don't love seeing that at 2 a.m. You you know what's the deal, right? I got the call at 2 a.m., and that night was a Friday night. They had a weekly standing date at Barnes & Noble, and my mom was going to the bathroom, and she passed out. They took her to the hospital and found a massive brain tumor in her head. I was 23. That sent my life into a tailspin. And for the first time in my life, I was confronted with some major questions. What am I going to do? It doesn't add up. I know God's victorious, I know He triumphs, I know He heals. What am I going to do? I feel like God dropped Psalm 131, like just parachuted it down into my lap as a gift. This will get you through some hard times. It's a beautiful gift from God. Now to be clear, none of my questions about faith were answered in that sermon and the journey got way harder over the past, the next few years. But what I had after that sermon and after that text was I had a way forward that leaned me into God that did not include me walking away. It's a juncture that a lot of people get to what are you gonna do? Are you gonna lean into God or are you gonna walk away? I had, I had a way to lean into the Lord. Um, I didn't know what he was up to, but, but, I, but I knew how to trust in him. And so with that, I, I wanna read Psalm 131 now that I've set it up very high. <laughs> oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great. Too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul with me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you use these words to comfort wounded hearts this morning? Would you use this as a signpost this morning to, to guide hearts? to you. Lord Jesus, be in our midst this morning and teach us and train us how to have a faith when it doesn't make sense. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The Psalm of David, and if anybody could write a psalm or anybody could have a biography on, on how, to, how to make sense of life when you don't know what's going on, it would be King David. He, his whole life was filled with these tensions, just think about his early years. God had called him out of a life of obscurity. He was minding his own business and God had picked him out to lead the nation. Like he wasn't just obscure in, his own, in the nation. He was obscure in his own family. You remember the time that the prophet came to anoint him the king? He went through all the brothers and Samuel literally had to say, are you sure there's nobody else in your house? Yeah, I guess you could talk to David. And so they called David out and sure enough, it was God's man. David didn't go seeking the kingdom. God found him. And he anointed him. And as that anointing came over his life, everything in his life changed. He wa- the very next scene, he's walking onto a battlefield and with a stone, he kills the Philistine giant. He immediately won the hearts of the people. They started making up songs about David. He married the king's daughter. He entered the king's palace. He befriended the king's son. David knew the power of God. Everything was great, right? Right? Well, that was until he was playing a harp for King Saul and a spear was thrown at his head. Maybe it didn't make sense. And then for the next 10 years, Saul made it his life goal to kill David, this threat. And so David then, with the anointing of God and the power of God, the calling of God, now spent 10 years hiding in caves foaming at the mouth, pretending he was mad in in enemy territories just to preserve his life. Where was God now? David was constantly placed in these frustrating, confusing situations. He he knew the truth of God's power. You can't forget killing a giant. Like, I know this is, I know you're, you're here, God. I know you're powerful. I know you can come through. And yet he was often in exile. What was he gonna do? Here's the great thing about David. He never gave up. He never walked away. Lots of other characters in the Bible, King Saul being one of them. When they get to these places, they get impatient. They take shortcuts. David never did it. He rested in God. He waited in God. And Psalm 131 shows us the motto of his life, how he was able to navigate that tension. Look at verse one. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. The first thing David did when he found himself in these impossible situations was to look inside and give an honest appraisal of his worth. He, he looked inside and he remembered who he was. And this is what he found I'm just a human. Sure, this, the, the crowds out there are singing, Saul has killed his thousand, but David has killed his ten thousand. David didn't read his own press. No, 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 I, I'm just a human just a human. He knew better. His heart wasn't lifted up. That means swollen with pride, a bigger self-worth. He thought he didn't think more highly of himself than he ought. His eyes weren't raised too high. The Hebrew literally means he wasn't looking down on people. That's what happens when you're proud. You begin to look down on other people. And then this third one I love, he was not occupying himself with things that were beyond him. He wasn't grasping for things that were clearly out of his reach, demanding answers to questions that just he didn't need to ask. There were things that were out of his control. So David sang this song to remind himself how small he was. This was the secret to David's greatness. He knew how small he was. He lived within the limits of his humanity. There's a story in Second Samuel. Second Samuel six. You remember it where David had gotten the ark and he's bringing it back to Jerusalem and he's dancing before God with all of his might. And what is his wife doing? It's a good picture of looking down. She's looking from her palace down at David and despising him. How dare the king act like that? You remember what happened? He came up and she started chewing him out. How dare you undignify yourself? You remember what David said? You think that was something. I'll become even more undignified. And then the text says, I will become even smaller in my own eyes. I don't value myself up there like you do. I, I'll become even smaller. If you want to mature faith, that is the first step. You, you, you give up your pride. Pride is the enemy of faith. Pride will always lead you away from God. It's like the the back end of a magnet that just, it, it leads you away. You cannot draw near to God with a proud and haughty heart. Pride will never let you rest. Pride will puff you up. It will cause you to look down on other people. It will make you entitled and arrogant. It disorients you in the world. You can't, you can't make it through pride that way or through life that way. You remember in Alice in Wonderland where how she's always blowing up and filling up the houses? That's how pride does to us. It disorients us and it doesn't allow us to make it through life. It's a miserable way to live. But many of us don't know any other way. It's the condition of our hearts since Adam and Eve rebelled in the, the garden, but it's a it's incredibly difficult in our own society now. Here's why. I think from many societies, I think have rightfully seen pride as a vice. Our society encourages pride, encourages thoughtless ambition. Work hard to hide the fact that you're small and fragile and needy. Don't let anything in. Don't let anything show that you're weak. Puff yourself up. Look down on other people. Like, we're constantly reminded of this. We live in a world that reinforces this over and over. Let me try to illustrate. Um, Think about the way that you eat. For most of human history, every meal was a reminder that we are small. We are creatures. You know why? Because you went through a very long and fragile process. You, You scraped up the ground, you planted the seeds, you watered, and then you waited. If God brought the rain you ate. You could feast. This is why we we pause before we pray, because every meal is a reminder that I, I didn't do this. This was a gift. I'm a very small thing in this whole creation. But that's not how we think about food anymore, is it? Food is no longer a gift. Food is assumed. This is why you go to your grocery store, and if they don't have your brand of almond milk, you let him know. <laughs> you grab the, the little, the, the dairy clerk and you say, this is a, this is a shame. Everybody carries almond breeze. I'm going downtown. I'm going, this is, I'm done. I'm done with this grocery store. We become entitled and arrogant. Instead of pausing with your family at a restaurant to, to, to say thank you, not only for a simple meal, but for a feast. Instead of doing that, we, we take the college freshman waitress who is working her way through college, and we, gr- and we say, excuse this is just this is foolish. I clearly said no mushrooms. <laughs> I want you to send this back. We, we, we've forgotten how small we are. We've become big. We've become puffed up. Or think about this. I mean, there's so many ways we can go. I'll give you one more. How about, there used to be a time not too long ago, just, I mean, we're talking just a few years ago, where we would constantly remember how fragile and forgetful our brains were. We'd be in a conversation with a friend and somebody would go, who was that guy in that movie? And it would send you into a spiral for, for three days where you would obsess to remember who that guy was in that movie. You don't know, you know, remember this? You would lose sleep. Your, your performance reviews at work would crush because you're just trying to rack your brain. Who was that guy? You're calling your aunt, surely she'll know. And it would always end at 2 a.m. You'd pop your head, it was Gregory Peck. All right, I can, I can rest. You remember that, don't you? It's been a while since you've done that, hadn't it? You know why? Not because you're smarter, but because you carry a powerful device in your pocket and you just ask any question and it'll gladly give you an answer. We, we've, we've forgotten how fragile and how limited we are. Our phones have changed our experience in the world. Do you remember how small and human you felt walking into a truck stop asking what city you were in? <laughs> we don't get lost anymore. We don't even have to sit in traffic anymore. We're like little gods on the interstate. These are minor examples, but they illustrate a major problem. We can't forget how small we are. I'm talking to my generation and younger. We've not lived through a a global war. We've not been humbled by a depression, but we have lived through unprecedented affluence. Technology has improved our lives in every way. And as wonderful as that is, I fear that we've become very entitled. And unless we check the condition of our hearts regularly like David, we will become swollen with pride and we're gonna regularly venture out into areas that we don't belong in. It's so dangerous and here's why, because the puffed up soul, the soul that ventures out into things that are too great and too marvelous, it's not prepared for disaster. It's not prepared for failure. If you never experience hunger, if you never experience forgetfulness, if you never get lost, if you never experience and remember how small you are, what are you gonna do when something truly awful happens to you? Will you demand an answer from God? When you go through the valley, as we sang about this morning, what will you do when God feels distant and your prayers bounce off the ceiling? Will you give up and walk away? Now, I need to be careful here because... I want you to know that it's appropriate to ask hard questions of God. He invites you to. He inspired David on other occasions, many other occasions to ask the hard questions. In Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to ask hard questions. It's okay to ask honest questions of God when your life falls apart. Listen to Haddon Robinson. Sometimes the question why is the sob of a broken heart. Sometimes the question why is like a pained sigh. The difficulty comes when the question mark becomes a dagger, and that dagger is pointed at the heart of God. That's the essence of pride, when you demand an answer. David did not go there. He could ask his question in pain. No matter what the response was, he would trust. He refused to sit in judgment over God. There were things too wonderful and marvelous for him. Look at the second verse. Because David was able to renounce his pride and and humble himself and remember how small he was, he, he was in a position to trust God. If arrogance is the back end of the magnet that drives you away, humility draws you in. I've calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Again, the proud heart can't trust God, doesn't want to. But the humble heart leans in like a child with its mother. Now this is a very intimate image. And I would imagine there's a lot of adults, full-grown men in the room, self-sufficient people that feel uncomfortable with relating to God like this. For a lot of you, this verse confirms your suspicions. Christianity is a weak religion for weak people, but it doesn't help you when things get hard. That's not what this verse is saying. Remember who wrote the psalm? David was a warrior king. This is my imagination here. Let me just give you this. As I was imagining this text this morning, thinking about who wrote this psalm, I I couldn't imagine, I I couldn't help but imagining David getting back from battle, wiping blood off of his hands, picking up his heart and singing this psalm. This is not a weak faith. This is an extremely mature faith. The key word in this verse is weaned. There's a dramatic difference between a breastfed baby and a weaned child. We've gone through this a few times in my home. We have lots of kids. (laughs) And so I I know the drill. The breastfed baby is a cute baby. So adorable and snuggly, but don't be fooled. (laughs) You walk up to the crib and every two hours, they're like a time bomb. Every two hours, you know the drill, they start to stir in the crib (laughs) and they make that face (laughs) and they start flailing their arms Now, here's the trick. When they make that grunt, you know that grunt. You have about five seconds to get that thing to its mom (laughs) before it makes an ungodly noise that should never come out of a human that size. (laughs) That's not what David's saying here. Calm me down. I'm restless. I'm hungry. I need you. Calm me down. That's not how David is saying it. That's not the image of discipleship in the Bible, but it's how many of us relate to God. We're stuck in a perpetual infancy. Um, maybe maybe this will help expose some of the ways that we think about it. I came across an article from David Powlison, um, a fantastic Christian counselor, that he's known for creating what he calls anti-Psalm. So flip a Psalm inside out and and write the inverse. So if the Psalm shows us what a life of faith in God looks like, he'll write an anti-Psalm, which shows us what the practical godless existence looks like that many of us live. The anti-Psalm 131. Oh Lord, I can't stop thinking about my problems. Nobody understands what I'm going through. I demand an answer for every problem I face. So naturally I'm noiseless, noisy and restless inside. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap, like a hungry infant, I am restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. It's convicting. That's not a life of faith but it's the only life that many of us know. God wants to move you beyond that, to grow you up. It's a really painful process though. And it's kind of like a weaning. You went through that when you were a kid and it was hard and you didn't like it, but it was for your good. And it's what God wants to do with your faith. The loving mother will say to the baby, no more milk. Have something better. Me. That's what the mom says. There will most likely come a time in your life where God will deny you something that you really want. A question, maybe. A comfort. In order to teach you something far greater. This transition is a really hard transition, and I feel like that's maybe where a lot of people walk away. They don't want to do it. They, don't, they, can't, they can't face that God would be maturing them and so they walk away. But for the people that stay, there's an amazing blessing if you learn to trust in God even when you don't get what you want. Spurgeon says it well. It's a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forgo the joys which once appeared to be essential and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. That's the great message of Psalm 131. God may not give you an answer. He may not take away your pain, but he always promises something better. He will give you himself. Like a weaned child, you can go to God always and find that comfort. Some of you are hung up on the question, why this morning? Why, God, why? It's it's not a question that God promises to answer. He denied it from Job. And he denied Paul three times. God may never reveal why you're going through what you're going through, but he gives you something better. Can I suggest a a deeper question? You might think that that's the basement. Why? There's a deeper level. and, And I wanna invite you to go to that this morning. Is God for me? Can I trust him? And the answer is a resounding yes. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, this is a promise. You can rest in this. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He may not give you answers to your questions, but He will give you Himself. Take comfort in Christ this morning. One final thought. Verse 3, back in Psalm 131. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This conclusion's boggled me for a lot of years. It just seems unexpected. This is a pretty intimate psalm. And if I were David, I would have kept this one in the private journal with the lock and key and not the one to be sung by God's people for 3,000 years because it's pretty personal. It's pretty intimate. But that's not how David worked. He wanted his faith to be embraced by the entire nation. He was a good king. It wasn't just this journey between, between him and God. It was a communal thing. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord, hope in God, both now and forevermore. He prayed that for you and, I, you and me. Earlier this week, a friend and I were talking about sermon preparation, and he asked how long I've been preparing for this message. I told him about 12 or 13 years, <laughs> and, and I mean that. As I've said, this psalm is very meaningful for me and I've had many occasions to preach, but I always jump over it because it's pretty personal. Like I, I wouldn't, you know, the Bible says you value the word more than gold. I, I value this one more than gold, I genuinely do. And, and it, it hits some soft spots in my heart. There were, there were parts of my manuscript that I couldn't get through this week without breaking down. But this final verse compels me to preach. We need a strong and mature faith, church. We, we need a strong and mature faith. I'm crushed. This sermon it was also written out of a place of deep pain and brokenness to see people walk away from Jesus. It is wearing me out and tiring me. And I know that some of you are on the brink you've drifted, you don't know if God exists and you're ready to walk away and you think there's nothing to get me back to God. Like the journey back to God will be this long and horrible process of silence and penance and good deeds. No. I I want you to know this morning there's one movement you need to make. If you're in that place where you don't, you don't know if you can make it anymore, you don't know if you can make it another day and you can't think about walking back to God, there's one simple movement. And I wanna invite you to take that right now. It's about as simple as a little kid crawling into the lap of his loving mother. It's what God wants from you. Will you trust him even if the facts of your life don't line up? facts of your faith. Will you rest in God this morning? Oh, Israel, church, trust in the Lord, both now and forevermore. I want to invite us to pray, and I want to give you some space to do just that, just to cry out to God and to rest in Him and to trust in Him. The band, you can come on up and prepare for one final thought. I want to give some space for us to contemplate this. Let me read these words of Jesus. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of the heaven? The kingdom of heaven. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven.